Stokes? Yeah. I forgot to record myself last week. I got to make sure I do it this week. My name is Simon Stokes. I am the RUF campus minister. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I don't normally do this, uh, but I was reading through this book a little bit today. And if you're one of those people who, like, you get class books and you're like, ugh, I can't read just class books. I, like, I need to read other books. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's super, yeah, it's great. It's super thin. It's fun. If you like any kind of like basic fantasy fiction, it's awesome. Um, I love it. I'm a huge fantasy nerd. Um, Gandalf. Uh, <laughs> that's me. Um, but it's a great book. Check it out if you are one of those people who likes to read other things. Uh, also, if you're new here, if you're new to college, you're new to campus ministry, and you're just trying to, trying to get plugged in and things like that, uh, I may call you, someone may call you and want to like get coffee and hang out. Uh, that's not, like, on my end, that's not a weird thing to do, but I recognize that on your end, that may be a weird thing for a 30-year-old man to call you up and see if you just want to go get coffee sometime and talk about your life. <laughs> uh, I really want to get to know you. I really want to know how to serve you. Um, I really want to be a part of your life if I can be a part of your life. Uh, so if I call you up, that's kind of why I'm calling you up. If Megan calls you up, that's kind of why she's calling you up. You're not being called into the principal's office. Uh, <laughs> we're not in high school anymore. We're in college. I want to know you, um, so there. All right. Uh, <laughs> so this week's text is Mark 2, 1 through 12. If you would, turn to there or just read on that screen. Uh, this week I was talking to... One of the other students here, a, a friend of mine, or someone I've gotten to be friends with, and she's a nursing student, and she was telling me about her first year as a nursing student, her first semester, she was assigned to the GI floor, which is gastrointestinal, it's like this stuff right here. That's, I don't know anything about medicine, it's this stuff. <laughs> like, whatever's going on right here, that's what it is. Uh, and so she's there, and she's kind of hanging out, she's doing her job. But there's a lady who's not really her patient, but she's sick and she's in the next room and she keeps calling uh, this student in to kind of take care of her, to kind of clean her up. She's got this abscess in her stomach. She also has a colonostomy bag, which if you don't know what that is, it's a bag for when your body can't process its own food. There's a bag on the other end to kind of take care of the remainder. Uh, (laughs) So she's there, she's cleaning her up. And uh, an older nurse comes in and she says, hey, do you want to help me kind of clean up this bag? Like, it has to get changed out. It's part of the deal of being a person. You eat, food goes in, food has to go out at some point. So do you want to help me clean up this bag? And uh, the student says, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a nurse. I'm ready for whatever. Here we go. And uh, so she goes She goes in there. She, they have to suit up a little bit because you don't want any of that stuff on you. And so they suit up a little bit, and it's hot, it's heavy, and, like, there's this terrible smell because there's an abscess, there's the colonoscopy bag, and they open it up, and it's like, whoa. It hits you in the face, and there's infection, there's green fluid, there's everything kind of coming out. And the student starts to feel really faint and woozy, and she has to go behind a room and kind of sit down, and she passes out, and people find her later. <laughs> she didn't wake up on her own. People found her. <laughs> She's okay. Don't worry about it. But I tell that story... Because the biblical understanding of people is that all of us are really, really terribly sick and we're eaten from the inside out by stuff that we really don't want to know about, things that we spend most of our life avoiding if we can. We avoid the truth of how weak we are. We want to feel strong. How wise we think we are, but we know we have a lot to learn. Um, We want to bind up our own wounds. But 
The Bible says that only faith in Christ will heal us. That we want to take care of our own needs. But Jesus is the only one that meets our needs. And, you know, how do we identify those needs? If I were to think about it, I would say it's that thing which I couldn't live without. Like there's water, there's food, there's shelter. Those are basic needs, right? But what is that thing that if you were to say, like this is what made my day good today. Or if this happens to me, it was a bad day. If this thing happens, then birds are laying on my shoulder, we're singing a song in conjunction, what, <laughs> skipping down through the quad. But if it doesn't happen, my life may not be worth living. That boy noticed me. I finally got into that class that I wanted. Somebody from the it crowd kind of finally invited me in. Or to kind of bang a drum from last week. My dad finally said that he was proud of me. It's the sense that maybe I'm always trying to, to get into the good graces of the people that I love or maybe of God and then saying something or doing something or not doing something and falling out of those graces. And the days that I feel like I'm in, those are great days. But the days I feel like I'm out, those are days when I feel miserable. And if I were really honest with myself, I'd probably say that most of my life is oriented on me trying to buy my way into the good graces of God and of other people. That might be what I want the most. But what is our real need? What do we really need? As we read this text, we're going to ask three basic questions of it. What are our needs? What do, we, what do we actually need? How does God meet those needs? And then what do we do when He does meet those needs? So what are our needs? How does God meet those needs? And what do we do when God meets those needs? So let's read Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when He, it's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that He was at home. And many were gathered together so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he's preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, a lot of us are sitting here and we don't really know what we need. If we were really honest with ourselves, all we could think about is how hot it is. Uh, maybe that we didn't get enough to eat tonight um, at the dining hall. They were worried about uh, our grades and what we've got to go uh, and do after this. We're already feeling the pressure from the semester. But Lord, I pray that you'd be with us in our needs tonight. God, you look into people's hearts and you know what they need. Would you do that for us tonight and would you be with us in our needs? Would you help us? Would you heal us? Would you bind up our wounds? In your son's name we pray. Amen. So what are our needs? Uh, 
I guess the first qu- per- person you'd identify with in this story, the first person you really read about is, like, who is the neediest person in this story right here? Pretty, pretty obviously it's the paralytic. It's the guy that, that can't move. What would it have been like for that guy? So you're in the Middle East. It's 2,000 years ago. Uh, you're not able to work. There's no Social Security. Uh, there's not a desk job. Everybody's doing menial labor. This guy is this guy's poor. This guy, like can't really help his family like make an make a living, earn enough money to buy food. Like he he's not just a paralyzed, but he's actually kind of a burden on the people around him. And he probably knows that. And he probably feels pretty guilty about that. And so these guys, his friends, his family, I don't know who they are. The text doesn't say. But these guys come and they let him down on a mat from a out of the roof. Because they know, or they think they know what his needs are. It's not just because they love this guy, I mean, they probably do, but it's because they know, we need this guy to work. They're not, like, basically, like, we need this dude to, like, to, like, go out and get a job. And this Jesus guy, he's healing folks, that sounds like a pretty good deal to us. They're not thinking this guy needs to go and he needs to get forgiven, like Jesus is this Messiah, miracle worker guy. They're thinking this guy can get this dude off of a mat, and out into the field to hoe some grain or whatever they're hoeing out there. They're coming because it's, they, to them it's obvious what they think he needs. Yet what does Jesus see as this guy's greatest need? Before we ask, answer that question, take a step back and look at this text. Is there anybody that loved poor people like Jesus loves poor people? Like, here is a guy that would go to bat for the poor. Like, nobody cares for them like Jesus cares for them. Nobody gives them more dignity. Nobody cares about the oppressed. Nobody cares about the marginalized like Jesus. Not anybody. His storyline is that he's God. He leaves his throne in heaven. He gives up all of his riches, all of his power to do what? To become an emperor? An entitled rich guy? He gives up his wealth and his power to become poor. Like he identifies so closely with the poor that he's going to become poor. Yet, what is the first thing here that Jesus does for this guy? Does he, does he heal him? No. He forgives him. Why does he forgive him? Because that's his greatest need. You know, we read this, and immediately, where do we put ourselves in the story? Especially if you kind of grew up going to Sunday school class, and there's like a, a felt board, and you kind of remove the roof of the felt board, and then you're like dropping the guy, like scrunching him down, and there's Jesus, and like there's people, like where do you put yourself if you grew up in that kind of Sunday school classroom? Like you're one of those guys who needs to find his friends and like bring his friends to find Jesus, right? Like that's an application of the text. But that's not, that's not what this text is here for us. The point of this text is to help us see that we need to be the guy on the mat, that we need to get on the mat, that we're the paralytic. That we need to be the person who says, Jesus, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the power of myself to go and, and get up off my mat. I need you. So that's what we need. That's our greatest need. Our need to be forgiven. You know, it can be tough to talk about forgiveness. I think a lot of people hear guilt when they hear forgiveness. But here's what forgiveness is. This is why we need it. It's that when God made the world, He made it. In such a way that it was like, he's this beautiful, he's woven this beautiful tapestry. And then we come into it and we sin against other people. And we're not just sinning against these people and hurting folks and hurting our parents and hurting ourselves or hurting our 
the person who lives next to us. But we're hurting this tapestry that God has woven. All these relationships together, all these people together, the environment together. So when we pollute, we're sinning against creation. It's bad. <laughs> uh, but we're, it's like we're sitting next to this tapestry weaver and we're pulling out the threads of this tapestry right next to this guy. And we're destroying this tapestry and so there's like this way in which we need to be forgiven with the people next to us. But the person who made that tapestry, the person who cares the most about these people, the person who wove all these things together, like how invested do you think that guy is into this, into this beautiful piece of art that he made? Like if you're tearing that out in front of him, you need to ask that guy for forgiveness. And so our chief need to be forgiven is before God. And so when we sin against each other with a careless word, with lustful intent in our heart, we're also trampling on the image that God made in other people. That it's not just this tapestry that he's woven of all these relationships, but he's also, he's also stamped his image on you, on me and on everyone that you meet outside. And so when you, you sin against another person, you're sinning against that dignity that God has put in that person, whether they're a rich person or a poor person whether they're a gay person or a straight person, whether they're a black person or a white person or whatever, like you sin against that dignity that God has put in them. And so you're not just sinning against that person, you're sinning against the person that made that person. And we do that stuff all the time. And so we need to be forgiven. But what do we do with that, that need? What do we do with that forgiveness? What do you do with that guilt that you feel from all the stuff that you did with your girlfriend or your boyfriend in high school? And it feels like you won't ever get clean. You got to get on the mat. You got to get with the paralytic. What do you do with the fact that you hate your sweet mate? Like, even though they're the selfish one, but you hate them. <laughs> and it feels like your anger is just not ever going to stop burning, and you just cannot stand being in the same room with them. You got to get on the mat. What do you do with the fact that you surf the internet for hours? looking for stuff that you wish you could buy, that if you just had that, that shirt or those pair of pants or that piece of like jewelry, like your life would kind of be complete or you'd finally like have made it. And you're not buying things, but you're coveting those things. And it feels like there's this hole inside of yourself that just won't ever get filled. You've got to get on the map. So I talked about the voyage of the Dawn Treader a little while ago. It's one of my favorite stories. It is honestly one of my favorite stories ever written. Uh, but basically it's a story of these two British kids who get sucked into a painting, which is weird, into this other, <laughs> into this other world called, called Narnia. Uh, if you heard the SNL skit a few years ago, Chronicles, what? Narnia. That, yeah, you've heard it. <laughs> no more rapping. That's this. <laughs> Stop. Uh, but I love it so much because of the characters in it, and I love the adventure that they're on. They get sucked in this painting, and it's this boy Eustace, this girl Jill, and Eustace is a jerk. Like, he's just like, he's this cranky, mean, like emotionally unstable 12-year-old kid. He's like the guy that, like, when you watch reality television, you know the producers put that person on there, just kind of stir the pot, because that's the crazy one. And, like, no matter who gets kicked off, like, your favorite character is getting kicked off, but the crazy person is still on there. Like, this is Eustace in that story. Because he's, he's this mean guy. He's this very, like, dragonish guy. And in the story, like, they're on this ship, they're kind of having all these adventures going from island to island, trying to sail to the end of the world, which is a neat thing in itself. Uh, but they reach this island, and Eustace, being a very dragonish person, goes out by himself, because no one else really wants to go out with him. And he finds this heap of dragon gold, 
and there's this like dead dragon on it, and he sees the gold and he loves it. Like he instantly covets it and wants it. And if you've ever read kind of a fairy tale, you know, like, man, if you're kind of a dragon in your heart and you fall asleep on dragon gold, like, you know what's going to happen? You become a dragon. That's what happens. <laughs> That's what happens. It's a fairy tale. That's the way it works. And so he, he goes to sleep and he becomes this dragon. And it's not that he became a dragon. It was that he was already a dragon in his heart. That he's this mean, emotionally unstable, like, jerk of a 12-year-old. And he wakes up. And at first, it's kind of cool. He's got claws, he's got scales, he's got, like, leathery bat wings, he can fly around all over the island, and, like, he breathes fire, which is pretty sweet. But at the same time, he's super lonely. He's miserable. He has all of this gold, but he has no friends. He has all of this strength, but he has no beauty. And he tries to pull this dragon's scales off, like, rip it and yank it, but he can never get deep enough, because the fact of the matter is that he was always kind of a dragon. But now he's just, he's just externally a dragon as well as internally. So he can't change himself. He can't scratch this stuff out. And so what happens? What happens is that Aslan, who if you've ever read these Chronicles of Narnia, like he is the Jesus figure in it. You, I'm not ruining anything there. Like you read the book for like five minutes, you figure it out. He's the Jesus character. <laughs> he comes, and he comes to Eustace, and he puts his big, sharp lion claws in him, and he pulls off that scaly dragon hide. And he tears off the wings, and he tears off the strength, he tears off the scales, and Eustace can't breathe fire anymore. But he's suddenly a real boy again. He's suddenly the person he was supposed to be. And so what if, I tell that because what if you could stop justifying yourself in front of other people? What if you could take off your strength and your power and just say things like, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? What if you could just be yourself in front of God? What if you just be yourself in front of other people? And that doesn't feel like, doesn't that feel like a pretty big need? To be yourself, maybe for the first time. I think that's what it would feel like to be forgiven. I think that's what it would feel like to kind of be free. To kind of be on that mat. There's a freedom there that God gives you. To know that God has looked at you and said your sins are forgiven. So how does God meet those needs? Look at verses 5 through 8. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? So, Look at the difference between the man and his friends and between the, the scribes. Those people that are not very happy about that. That man, that man and his friends, they're trying to get near to Jesus. They remove the roof above him. They make an opening. They let the man down. The scribes just kind of sit there quietly like a lump on a rock. And the problem is that they, they are questioning or asking themselves, who is this Jesus? Some of they doubt Jesus. Plenty of people come up to Jesus and ask him who he is. He asks people, who do you think I am? One of the best lines in the entire Bible is somebody comes up to Jesus in one of the other Gospels and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The problem isn't that they doubt. The problem is that they sit there and they don't take those doubts to God at all. They don't take those doubts to Jesus. You see, the guys with the paralyzed friend are doing everything in their power to get to Jesus. They're ripping, like, they're ripping roofs off of buildings. They're, la- they're layering, or lowering their friend down on a mat to get to this guy. 
The scribes are saying, who does this guy think he is? It's not they're asking, who is he? It's, who does he think he is? So what's the difference between them? The difference is in verse 5. It's, it's the faith. I think a lot of us struggle with that. Is how much faith do we need? How much faith does it take? So imagine that tonight, God forbid, you're in some horrible accident after RUF. And then you rush to the hospital, doctors and nurses clean you up, you're hooked up with all sorts of needles, and they pump you full of life-giving fluid instead of, say, like hot cocoa or motor oil, something like that. What would have saved you in that? What would, it, like, what would have saved your life if you're hooked up with all those things? Would it be the needles? Would it be the fluid? It's the fluid, right? Like, that's the thing that saves you. That's the thing that's actually saved your life. Yet I think a lot of us struggle so much with faith because we think of faith in terms as though it were the fluid. But it's not. Faith is the means by which we're saved. It's not the salvation itself. Look at the verbs that Mark uses for that paralyzed man and his friends. They carry the man. They remove the roof. They let the man down through the hole in the roof. Do those actions in themselves make that man get off his mat? Are they what pardon him of his sin? No, not at all. What saves that man? What saves that guy is Jesus. But what was the means by which that man got to Jesus? It was getting carried by his friends. It was getting let down through a roof, right? And what so many of us want to say so much of the time is, if I just believed enough, if I just felt like I was a Christian enough, if I just kind of worked myself up to this point where I felt like I had enough faith, wherever that is, I don't know where that is, then I, I'd be pretty sure that I was in. But you're asking faith to do something it wasn't meant to do. Faith on its own isn't the thing that saves you. It's the object of that faith that saves you. Like if faith in that previous story was the IV needle, what if they hooked you up with that IV needle to like hot cocoa or motor oil? Like that, that IV needle wouldn't save you very much, would it? It wouldn't be very helpful. <laughs> it would actually probably kill you. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather just bleed out than be pumped full of motor oil. <laughs> That's just me. Um, but if you, if you think about it, it's got to be that object. It's got to be that thing that you're plugged into. You know, if you were to grab a cup of cold water on a hot day, would you ask yourself, is this cup big enough? Like, do I want the gallon size? Do I want the little size? Or is it the right shape? Is it a hexagon as opposed to like a square or like a circle? Is it the right color? Do I have the right color cup to drink today? No, you don't. That's, I know, that's ridiculous. You wouldn't ask yourself that. What you want to know is what is in that cup? Is it sand? Is it salt? Or is it, is it cold water? Because the cold water is what's going to quench your thirst. When you're riding in a car, do you ever think about your windshield? No, nobody ever thinks about their windshield in their car, not unless it gets broken out. What you think about is, what's behind that windshield? Like, where am I going? What's the purpose of this journey? The windshield is just something there to help you get there. Did the guy on the mat get better because he got shoved through a roof? No. But getting shoved through the roof was the means by which he got better. Don't focus on your faith, how much faith I have. Focus on the object of your faith. Focus on Jesus. Is Jesus the one that's going to save me? Or am I going to save me? Do I just need to learn a few more things in a book somewhere? Do I just need to kind of get a little bit more moral? You know? Like just stop making out. Stop like treating other people like they're dirt. Or do I need to start looking at Jesus? Because that's what's going to save me. Not moralism. Not a few more things in a book. 
but Jesus. You know, also think about this from this passage. Jesus identifies so much for the poor that he becomes poor for them. And not just poor, but like dirt poor. Like later on, he, this is the beginning of Mark, later on he gives up this house so that he can be a homeless guy, which is a pretty radical thing. He gives up his family. He gives up the place that he lives so that he can be poor with poor people. So, if he's willing to become poor for poor people, what is he willing to do for sinners? You know, Paul, the apostle, is writing much later on. He's a well-educated Jewish guy. He's running into a bunch of knucklehead Gentiles. And he's trying to help them get back on track. And it's, he's writing in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 2, and people are sleeping with their mother-in-laws. There's infighting. Rich people are oppressing poor people, which if you're the founder of your faith became a poor guy, not a good idea. Don't oppress the poor. And what does Paul say to help people? What does he tell these folks that are doing all kinds of messed up, nasty things? Get more moral? Hey, you should read this book? No, he says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. That Jesus saw our poverty and he became poor. He saw our sin and he became sin for us. He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He gets on the mat so that we can be healed, so that we can be forgiven, so that God can look at us and say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, you're my beloved. I love you. You know, I had a friend recently, he was sitting in a pew listening to his pastor preach on the book of Jonah. There's a story about a man who doesn't want to go out to his enemies and tell them that God wants to forgive them. That God actually wants to forgive people that hate him, that are against him. He runs from God because he wants to be the judge of who deserves forgiveness and who doesn't deserve forgiveness. My friend told me he was sitting there and he realized something. He realized that he had spent his whole life not judging other people, though he'd done some of that, but he spent his whole life deciding what God could forgive for him and what he couldn't forgive for him. Lord, you can forgive me for my anger, but nobody can forgive me for my lust. You can say you forgive me, but I will never feel like I'm clean. Who are you to judge yourself? You know, faith isn't how much you feel. Faith is giving up the right to judge yourself and to agree with God that if He says your sins are forgiven, then they're forgiven. That at the end of the day, God has the last word in your life. And that if you've wrapped your life around Christ, if you put your trust in Christ, then, it, then His word is a pardon. It's a word of mercy. It's a word of forgiveness. And he looks at you and he says, your lust, in my eyes, is pardoned. The fact that you slept with people, I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with that, but I forgive it. The fact that you've gotten drunk before, I forgive that. Because he went to the mat for you. Because he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Because he cares so much for poor people, spiritually poor people like us. But he would become spiritually poor so that we could become rich. So what do we do when God meets our needs? What do we do when God forgives us? Look at verses 9 through 12 here. This is the last point. Jesus says to them, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. 
What would it look like for us to glorify God? What would it look like for us to receive that forgiveness and then to take that out and to say, God saved me. God has forgiven me. You know, one of the goals of RUF is that we'd be a community that not only worships Jesus, but we'd also be a community that tells people about Jesus. And y'all, that can be scary, that can be intimidating. Look, I've gone to seminary. I'm about to be ordained as a pastor. I'm kind of a a Bible guy. I don't think of myself that way, but I've gone to seminary, so I'm a Bible guy. And the idea of evangelism can be frightening to me, too. But let me ask you this. What if we changed our conversation from one that was about God in the first person to one that was in the third person? What do I mean by that? What if we changed from saying, you know, I wasn't doing so hot. I was in youth group, and I was kind of screwing around and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But then, like, my youth pastor, he kind of, like, took an interest in me, and we got involved, and I started reading a Bible study, and then I started a Bible study, and then I went to college, and now I'm in RUF, and things are going pretty good for me. What if instead of saying things like that in the first person, what if we said things like, you know, he saw me when I was filling my life up with things that were killing me. And I wanted those things to save me so bad. But the things that I was taking into my life, pornography and drugs and working like a dog to get people to like me, and always having to have my stuff together, left me feeling utterly empty inside. But he had mercy on me. And I hated him, but he loved me. And on my best days, on my very best days, I don't love him like he loves me. What if that was the conversation we had with people? Would that make evangelism easier? I think it would. I think for me it would. Now, or what about this? Are there things in our lives that a very moral person would look at and say, like, why, like, why are you doing that? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, they would look at our lives maybe and say, like, a very moral person would look at us and say, yes, you're going to work, you're being productive, you're meeting your commitments, you're giving money away to charitable causes, you're volunteering, you're a great friend to your friends, and even to people who you don't like that much. You're being a good roommate, you're trying hard in your studies. Those are great things. You are the glue that holds UNC together. You are the reason I like going to this school. A moral person could look at a lot of us and say that. But could a moral person accidentally walk in on us reading the Bible and say, why are you doing that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. What would you say to that? I think it's, it would freak some people out that we would look at a first century means of torture and execution at a cross and put our hands on something like that and say, I need this. I need this because I don't have my stuff together. I know that I volunteer. I know that I work really hard in my studies. I know that I'm an awesome roommate. I like me. My friends like me. But at the end of the day, I need this. I need this so bad. What would a moral person do with that? What would we do with that? You know, I'll, I'll end with this. I had a, a friend recently. He was in Nashville. He was in this deli. He, he found this really, really awesome deli. Like a super, super good deli in Nashville. And he's kind of like a sandwich guy, kind of a foodie type person. And he finds this deli, and it's amazing. Except for the person who runs it is kind of like the soup Nazi. Like, <laughs> did you ever see Seinfeld? Uh, I feel like that's starting to get a little dated. Like some of the some of those whole episodes are based on the fact that Jerry doesn't have a phone. Like everybody has a phone now. Like, I can't relate to that. Uh, but the soup Nazi episode is where Jerry and his friends kind of find this amazing soup place, 
and it's run by this really tight, hard-up dude. And you kind of have to go in there, and you know exactly what you want, and you kind of walk through line, and you hit an exact change, and you turn around, and you walk out, and that's it. Like, otherwise, no soup for you. Like, that's the deal. And so my friend says he finds this deli, and the guy who runs it is, like, he's the sandwich Nazi. He's the deli sandwich Nazi. And he's totally, totally afraid of this guy. But my friend has kids, too, and it's like, well, one night, like, we run out, like, we run out of food at the house. Like, we just need to go out and get something to eat. And so, like, he's prepping the kids. Like, all right, we got to go to the deli Nazi. Like, get your stuff together. <laughs> Don't mess this up for me. I want to eat here again. <laughs> so he goes there, and, like, the kid, like, whenever you eat out with kids, like, there's always something that goes wrong. Like, some kid, like, they don't want the deli. They want chicken nuggets. Like, that's <laughs> not good enough. And you don't tell that to the deli Nazi. He's worked really hard to make these excellent subs. Uh, and so they go there, and the kids are just, they're kids. They're whining. They're complaining. Like, my friend had prepped his children. It didn't matter that he prepped them. They're still children. And, like, he goes, and they get through line, and they, they hand him the money, and the kids are cranky, and one kid asks for chicken nuggets. And the deli Nazi looks at him and he just smiles. He says, it's okay. It's all right. You know, a lot of us go through life feeling like God is this person who's going to look at us and say, you better get your act together. Otherwise, no soup for you. Get out. You're not worthy of my presence. I don't want you around here unless you fly straight. Unless you get your stuff together. Unless you live a PG life. A lot of people in the Bible aren't PG people. But God loves those people anyway. And you know, when the king looks at you, he says you're forgiven. He smiles at you. It doesn't matter what the peasants say. It doesn't matter what you say. If you have faith in Christ, his word is the last word. And you're forgiven. You're forgiven because he goes to the mat for sinners. Like you and like me, like everybody else is in the Bible. And all these people, these great churches. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you go to the mat for us. Thank you that you look at sinners and you have mercy on us. Lord, that's not me beating myself up. That's not me beating these people up. That's me being honest. That's us being real about our own heart. That we need you. That we need your cross. That if you hadn't died for us, we would surely die in our own sins. And God, I know that so many of us struggle with that. How much faith do I need? What does my faith need to look like? Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Am I not doing enough? Lord, would you give us a sense of rest? Would you put us on the mat? Would you help us to see that our sins are forgiven in your son Jesus? God, help us with that. Lord, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Would you let us rest in your son and his work? In your son's name I pray. Amen.